Okay, why don't, we, um, why don't we pray one more time together? Well, Father, we, um, we're so overwhelmed by the reality of oneness with Him so that we cannot die, which means for us that we have eternal life and that that life is irrevocable. It speaks to that sweet security that we have in your son, Jesus. That we are hidden in God and our life is hidden away in Christ. And that by virtue of our union with Jesus, we are going to live forever. What inestimable blessing that is to our souls. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see the wonder and the privilege of eternal security. And Father, we pray for your help as we study a very difficult passage of Scripture that we may come away knowing what your mind is regarding all these issues. And so we pray, Father, for your whole counsel to inform us today. Father, I pray that you would do just a a great work today of transformation. Renew our mind we pray. Bring us into greater conformity with your son, Jesus. Lord, you be the teacher here today. We pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, that it would cause a great illumination, that it would, it would give us understanding. And Father, we pray for your Spirit also to move among us evangelically. Father, that if there be any among us today who are not in a saving place, who are not yet in union with Christ and have not done business with God, have not closed with Him, with Your Son, Jesus. Lord, would You please reveal Yourself to them? Would You open up their eyes? Would You shatter their hardened heart? Give them a heart of flesh. Take out the heart of stone. We trust You and believe that You're able to do this, Lord. We pray for your blessing now on our time, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to interpret, so the scholars and theologians and the commentators say. This is a passage that has caused many people great angst because of what it says on the surface of it, and... When you think about what the disciples said in John chapter 13, I want to read you uh, something out of John 13 that I think is uh, pertinent to this passage here. You'll remember the situation when I begin reading in verse 21. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in his spirit and he testified and he said, Truly, truly, I I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples, plural, began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. That means that the disciples had on a psychological level, on an existential level, they had a limited capacity to know whether or not they were in fact who we know to become Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. So as much as we are able in our finite minds to know 
the level of security and the level of certainty in our hearts, there always is going to be a level of trepidation that I think is good and healthy for us. Jesus, of course, was talking about Judas Iscariot, the one that would ultimately betray him, the one that we know now never had eternal life residing in him, but was a thief and was ultimately false. And I think a similar dynamic is happening here in the book of Hebrews, where you have a general warning going out to all in the congregation, all of the Christians to whom the letter of Hebrews is written, and it hits everybody with a certain gravity. And that is because we are limited. We are finite. We search our souls to see, God, is there a false way in me? But we know ultimately that there are certain non-negotiable truths of Scripture. One being that eternal security is something that God has given to His people. So let me just kind of give you the options that are set before us here in this book, in this passage here in Hebrews, because ultimately there are two predominant views. There is the view that says that this is actually describing real, genuine salvation, this experience that we're going to be looking at here, but it also conveys actual apostasy from salvation and inevitably being lost. That would be predominantly in line with what the Arminian, historically Arminian interpretation of a text like this would be. As a matter of fact, John Wesley, very famous for saying that this passage obviously is teaching that a believer, a genuinely born-again believer, can lose his righteous standing before God and be eternally lost. John Wesley did not believe in eternal security. However, the other view is that this is... Uh, not referring to genuine conversion, that it says a lot about the experience of the person under question, but it falls short of real salvation, and that is the position that I take. However, I also want to stress that what is being talked about here is genuine gospel privileges, and I hope to make that plain. But I think I should also mention something about hermeneutics. Whenever you come to a passage of Scripture that is um, uh, complex, that is, that is um, difficult to interpret, that is not as clear as maybe some other p- passage of Scripture. And we know from Peter himself, so this is not uh, any, uh, to cause any shame for us that we have difficulty interpreting certain passages of Scripture. Remember that the Apostle Peter himself said about the writings of the Apostle Paul that some of the things that he wrote were difficult to understand. That is because we are operating with finite, limited, fallible capacity. We are not infinite. We are not omniscient. We are not infallible. We are not all-knowing, and therefore, we are subject to error. We are subject to error. But one of the things that we cannot do when we encounter a problem, interpretively speaking, is we cannot limit ourselves to the, the passage in question. We have to, at that point, let Scripture help us to interpret Scripture. This is the Reformed hermeneutic known as the analogy of the faith, the analogia fide. That is what the Reformers understood, is that the Scripture is its own greatest interpreter, so that you allow the Word of God to interpret the Word of God, and that is the way 
that we will precede. But first of all, let me begin by referring to these privileges that are set forth here in the passage. There are really four things, well, really three things that really I want to describe about the apostasy or the apostate that is being referred to in this passage. First, let's look at the privileges of the apostate, the privileges of the apostate. These are real gospel experiences. These are real gospel privileges. In other words, these are things that God has genuinely revealed, genuinely given, and that these folks had a genuine experience of. Again, they had a real experience, but that experience fell short of genuine salvation. The first one is this that they were enlightened. There are four participles that describe each experience, this idea of being enlightened, this idea of tasting, this idea of partaking, and then tasting two different things, tasting the good word of God and tasting the powers to come. These are all participial phrases. Why does it do that? Well, I'll tell you why it does that. If you look at the beginning of verse 4, it says in your NASB, for in the case of those which is not what you find in your ESV, for example, and many other translations, because there you will find the Greek word adunatos, which means it is impossible. It begins with, it is impossible for those who have been once enlightened. Well, the NASB takes the word impossible and groups it together with verse 6. But we'll get there. But here, we are told the very first one is that they had been enlightened. For it is Let's read it again, verse 4. For in the case of those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word and of the powers of the age to come and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's kind of the whole flow of thought. One big massive thought with each one of these participles being subordinate to the thought of the author. So here the idea of being enlightened, what does that refer to? To be enlightened means to be subjected to light. What light? To be subjected to the light of the gospel. Now, without question, even in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, the author says of the believers in the church that they too had been enlightened. And this is why interpreters have great angst as to how is it possible. On the one hand, he is speaking of real authentic Christian experience, but here he's speaking of something less. But we'll get to that point. Only to note that here, those who were once enlightened means that they were, they were subjected to true religion. In other words, they had a proper cognitive understanding, a real cognitive, maybe the better word to say, they had a real cognitive knowledge of salvation, of Christ, of the cross, of repentance, of the atonement. But as real as it was, it was not saving. It was not saving. I want to sum all of these up together as we go through them one by one. I'll come back and sum them up all together because they really are related. So here we are being told that apostates, those who have fallen away from the faith, have and can be exposed to the real thing. They can, be, they can come into contact with the truth. In other words, and these folks here apparently at one point in time were in fact exposed. Notice the word once. The word once refers to the initial place in time when they were exposed and they even understood the gospel. They understood the gospel. Next, look at what it says. 
They also tasted the heavenly gift. Now, the word here, to taste, just simply means to experience. They, they had an experience with the heavenly gift. What is that heavenly gift? I think the best way to understand the word heavenly gift is, is, is in a comprehensive fashion, referring to salvation as a whole, not one aspect of salvation, like God's righteousness or God's grace or the grace of God or the peace of God or the mercy of God, but comprehensively to salvation in its entirety. They had experienced this salvation. To what degree? To what extent? Were they exposed? Did they come in contact with it? Did they experience it? Well, we are not told, but we are told that they had a real experience with the heavenly gift because it's a real gospel privilege. Now, the next one is that they had been partakers of the Holy Spirit. So again, this language is extremely explicit. It says that they had not only uh, tasted of the heavenly gift, but they had become actual partakers of the Holy Spirit. They had partaken not of just of mere spirituality, but of the Holy Spirit himself in some form or in some fashion. Now, I think there is an important link. If you turn with me back to chapter 2 of Hebrews, uh, this is an important correlation, and I think it's pertinent, and we'll come back to it time and time again. But there you see from the very beginning the author talking about the first time that the church was exposed to the truth, to the gospel. The first time that if anybody would have been enlightened, if anybody would have tasted, if anybody would have been a partaker, initially speaking, the once that it is referring to is probably going back to this, where it says in verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels have proven unalterable, Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There is a salvation. And then he elaborates on how that salvation came to be known. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us. There it is. It was confirmed to us. By who? By those that heard, which most uh, believe that is referring to the apostles. The apostles. It was confirmed uh, through the apostles to the, the author and audience of Hebrews, and it says, God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So that is the initial co- point of contact with the Holy Spirit. And I think that we're going to see this even explained further in the last description. Not only that they became partakers of the Holy Spirit, in some form or fashion, they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. But then look at the last one because it's kind of related and almost explanatory of the first few. It says here that not only were they partakers of the Holy Spirit, but they tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. This might even be explanatory. What I'm saying is that the phrase partakers of the Holy Spirit might be explained by this phrase, that they had tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Several fascinating things are going on here. Several fascinating things are happening. Number one, 
This is part of God's revelatory work, and it's a twofold work. There's two aspects of this. There is the preaching aspect of the gospel, and then there is the witness of miracles that is being referred to here. That is what it's referring to when it talks about the powers of the age to come, the dunamis, the, the miraculous powers of the age to come were revealed in this time and in this place, and I think that that's what Hebrews chapter 2 is also referring to, God testifying to these, to these, these people, this church, this group of individuals, God was testifying by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. They had been exposed to the powers of the age to come. What's remarkable about that is that the phrase, the age to come, literally would refer to the fact that the kingdom of God was brought into the kingdoms of this world. Let me give you an example of that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Jesus says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, the age to come refers to the heavenly realm. It refers to the kingdom of God in perfection, in presence, in its very essence, in all of its raw glory, but that we can experience some of that in this world today, namely through the, the revelatory work of God, through the preaching of the gospel, and of course through miracles, which is really what is at hand here. So what you have is these folks being exposed to real gospel privileges like preaching the Word of God, the performing of miracles, and in that sense, I think, partaking of the, of the evidence and of the work of the Holy Spirit of, in their lives. They were partaking of the Spirit in their lives. Who could not say of Judas when he was three years with Jesus that he was not a partaker of the Holy Spirit, that he had not participated in the coming powers of the age to come? Matter of fact, there's even evidence that miracles would have been wrought through Judas himself, which is astounding to think about. But just because a miracle is performed or a person observes a miracle does not mean that that person is automatically saved. And that's something that needs to be kept in mind. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that these apostates, these false converts, these secret unbelievers are given badges, seemingly titles, descriptions, and even blessings that genuine believers also experience because in other places of the New Testament, this very thing can be found. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8 as a prime example of this where you have what we know to be false converts being described and being given descriptions of genuine conversion, or at least it appears to be that way. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. You remember this. This is the story of Simon Magus, the magician who was called by the people the great power of God because of the, magi the, the magic that he would perform and how he would impress those around him. But look at what is said about Simon. Beginning in verse 12, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Notice uh, no reference to infants for our Presbyterian friends. Verse 13 says, even Simon himself, watch this, believed after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And, was, and had observed signs 
and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. You see that? That's remarkable because the, the, the Greek word here, pistuo, is the same word that's used of genuine believers who believe. These other men and women who were truly, genuinely believing. Trust, apparently, having a reliable profession of faith. You know that because he goes from believing to being baptized. The church would have investigated his claims to faith. They would have tested whether or not he had a genuine uh, testimony. He would have had to articulate a, a, a genuine testimony before baptism, being scrutinized by the church, and then apparently passing the test and being baptized anyway. And notice further that seemingly for a time, Simon bore fruit so much so that Philip had taken him into his inner circle. It said he continued on with Philip, which means he was probably co-laboring with Philip, attending the, the, the preaching rallies of the evangelist Philip, being part of the ministry, being part of evangelism. Everything seems good up to this point, doesn't it? It says he even objectively was exposed to miracles. God allowed for miracles and signs and great miracles to take place in his presence. He saw the signs. He saw the miracles. He saw the power of the age to come performed right in front of his eyes. Right in front of his eyes. And it even seems as if he was, he was consenting to it. He was affirming it and even delighting in it, rejoicing in the power of God because it says that he was constantly amazed, constantly giving praise to the miracles and to the things that he was experiencing. And all the while, Simon Magus was false. He had the same titles that believers would have. He believed. He was baptized. He was a member. He was in ministry. He participated in the evangelism of the church. He bore fruit. These are all things that we say of believers all the time. But in the end, because there was no perseverance, Simon was discovered to be false, to be an idolater, to be a pagan, really, because he tried to synchronize Christianity with his magic. He tried to gain, he, he, his only interest in Christianity was personal interest, sordid gain. He had a selfish motive all along. And sadly, how many people today can we say are in that exact place? They're associated with Christianity. Maybe they're even in ministry. Maybe they're even pastoring and preaching. But their motive is for sordid gain. They have dollar signs in their eyes. Maybe their ministry is for influence and power, for fame and popularity, whatever it may be, which really wouldn't cut mustard in the first century under so much persecution. I don't know how famous you would be in the first century. But whatever it was, these personal interests were not of Christ. They were, Simon Magus was not in the ministry for Christ. He was not believing, professing, confessing Christ because he loved Christ because he wanted to glorify Christ. It was ultimately for self. Example after example after example can be given of folks in the Bible who are given the same description and badges as genuine believers only to fall away in the end. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here in the book of Hebrews. 
So that ultimately, somewhere down the line, if a person doesn't persevere, as we're witnessing here, what we have to come down to, we'll boil it all down, is that they fall into the category of the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower, which we'll get there. But let me just, um, let me go on to, uh, from the privileges of the apostate, the things that they have been privileged to be a part of and to partake of, now to the peril of the apostate, the state and the result of apostasy. Because the peril of apostasy in verse 6 is made clear when it says that it is impossible. If they have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. See, that's why this passage is so perplexing. Two levels. Number one, how is it that the author of Hebrews is describing these folks seemingly as having genuine Christian experience? That's number one. Number two, how is it that the author of Hebrews is now saying that it is impossible for someone to repent? That's troubling because I thought as long as you repent, you can repent. But this is saying you can't repent. And I'm not going to lighten the blow. This passage is teaching these folks could not repent. They were not able to repent any longer. So let's see if we can get into this a little bit. Notice the state of the apostate at this point. He has parapipto, permanently fallen away, or there, the present active, meaning a continual state of apostasy. Uh, I've taught enough for you to probably have heard me say there are two kinds of apostasy in the Bible. There is temporary apostasy and there is permanent apostasy. There is temporary apostasy, which is, the best, uh, which is best illustrated by the life of Peter or maybe even David, who for a temporary time and a temporary season went into a state of apparent apostasy where they no longer had Christian profession. They no longer were living the Christian life. They were no longer wanting to be associated with Christ. We see that with Peter denying that he even knew Jesus with cursings proceeding out of his mouth, emphatically renouncing his association with Jesus Christ. That's bad. That's bad. But we know from the Gospels that Peter was inevitably restored. And therefore, his apostasy was not permanent. It was temporary. This passage in Hebrews is not telling us the difference. It is not trying to explain these differences. But I think it is mainly emphasizing the nature of permanent apostasy. What happens when, like Judas, like Simon Magus, you are false and you continue for the rest of your life in the state of unbelief, that is what I think this, um, what, uh, this word here, fallen away, is conveying, is that it's a continual state in which they are now in. And it is inflexible. It is irremediable. It is unalterable. It is utterly hopeless at this point. Now, let me just qualify this by saying, this, let me just bring in this caveat here. We do not know whether someone has committed permanent apostasy. So we can't ever take the foot off the gas and say, well, that's permanent apostasy. I'm no longer going to reach out to that person. No, we don't know that. And the author of Hebrews is not saying that we can know that. The author of Hebrews is not even saying that this has happened yet in the church. But he is making a warning. He is setting forth a dire, dire warning that this is possible for anyone who at one point goes from a place of profession, a place of association, to a place of not simply doubting, not simply struggling or wrestling with one's faith, 
but of a willful public renunciation and blasphemy of Jesus Christ. We'll get there. But look at the, the result. There's two results that are mentioned here. Number one, not only do they fall away, of course, but two things are said about them. They are again crucifying, themse- uh, crucifying to themselves the Son of God and putting Him to open shame, to open shame. There's no hope anywhere at that point. The moment you have decided to put Jesus to an open shame, you are no longer, you are no longer able to repent, at least in this passage, this association. The context of Hebrews is absolutely crucial here because the weight of what is being said is connected to an Old Testament background that informs how the author wants us to take all of this. So, for example, look with me in chapter 3 to see this Old Testament background again. You remember he used this Old Testament background of the children of Israel, the, 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 the wilderness generation, and how they hardened their hearts. That's chapter 3, verse 7, or verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as the day that it provoked me, in the day of their trial, in the wilderness, where their fathers tried me by testing me. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they did not know my ways. Watch this. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the author of Hebrews is taking that Old Testament background, and he's using it as an illustration for what can happen to you in the new covenant if, like uh, chapter 6, you fall into this category of utter permanent apostasy. That's why he says, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that will fall away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see that? Old Testament background being used in this fashion. What these folks have done by this permanent apostasy, you've got to understand, going from an old covenant understanding and at one point embracing the new covenant reality, saying that you believe in the fulfillment of all of the law in Christ and all of these things, and then backing away from that as these folks have done and saying, we change our mind. Jesus is not the fulfillment of the old covenant. The sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient. The blood of the covenant is not special. It does not atone for sin. Well, what they've done is they've placed themselves in a contra-redemptive, anti-Christ, blasphemous, hostile place before God. Uh, Look with me to Hebrews chapter 10. This is a parallel passage, and this is another one of those passages that causes interpreters angst when they come to it, but it shows us the level of willful shaming of Christ that is taking place uh, in, the, in the mind of the author here. When a person reverts and goes away from the new covenant and whether they return back to the old covenant or not, but look at, look at what he says here. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? who has regarded, watch this, as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. 
And again, that word sanctified, which I would say is an apparent sanctification, not really sanctified, sanctified only as long as he is associated with the congregation. But his ultimate demise comes when he regards the blood of Jesus not just as insufficient, folks, but unclean, which means the blood of Jesus is a profane thing, which means they are putting him to an open shame. They're taking the sides of the Judaizers or the Pharisees and the scribes and the people that ridiculed Christ on the cross, demanding him to come down from the cross because they didn't view his atonement. They didn't view his sacrifice. They didn't view his death as a salvific death because they didn't view him as Messiah. Now, what these folks have done, therefore, is they've put themselves in a public renunciation, or they, they've committed a public renunciation of Christ. I say that because the word here, to put Jesus to an open shame, it's the same word there. It's a big, lengthy Greek word that is used only one other time in the New Testament, and that is when Joseph did not want to put Mary to open shame because he thought she had been unfaithful. So what these folks are doing is public. They are publicly shaming Christ. Now, let's move from the peril of the apostate to the picture of the apostate because, thankfully, the author of Hebrews gives us, I think, the interpretive clue, the interpretive link to this whole passage, and that's found in this parable that he gives, verses 7 and 8. Let me read that for us one more time. It says here in verse 7, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. So that's the point, blessing from God. Then verse 8, But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it's and its end and it ends up being burned. So we go from blessings to curse. And the reason why I say this is important is because the Bible uses this type of imagery elsewhere. For example, you find the same exact imagery found in Deuteronomy 29, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 21, Ezekiel 19, and also the parable of the sower, Mark 4 and also in Matthew 13 which we will get to. But there's also another, another link, and that is Isaiah chapter 5. Some have actually thought that Isaiah chapter 5 is actually behind this text in Hebrews chapter 6, that the author is using that, that, that idea, what happened in redemptive history in Isaiah chapter 5, where God saw the people as a great vineyard, that he had given them everything that they needed in order to know him. He had given them rain. He had dug out trenches for them. He kept the ground fertile. He took out the rocks. He tilled it. He cared for it. But in the end, as Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2 says, all that it yielded was worthless grapes. But what does that remind us of if it doesn't remind us of the parable of the sower? The parable of the sower is saying that there are only two kinds of of soil, two kinds of ground. There is good ground and bad ground. There is all kinds of variations within the bad soil. You have the thorny ground here. You have the one who fell on shallow soil. You have all these different variations, but in the end, you only really have two. 
You have good and bad. You have that which is going to be cursed or that which is going to be blessed. You find the same thing if you look at John chapter 15. Go there with me. John chapter 15. You know this. This is where Jesus brings in his analogy, his analogy of, the, of the, uh, the vine and the branches. Beginning in verse... Uh, Beginning in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You see that? See the similar vocabulary that's being used there? Is the author of Hebrews saying that God has taken genuine branches, true believers, righteous, justified, and has taken them out of the vine, or they've taken themselves out of the vine, and they've become now unrighteous. They've lost their righteous status. I would say no. What you're seeing instead is that they never were good ground in the first place. And the, the ultimate proof of that is that they did not produce good fruit. And because they did not produce good fruit, like Esau, at least in the case of Hebrews, they are unable to repent. Now, the fact that they're unable to repent, the fact that they cannot be restored is very, I think what it means ultimately is that they have gone so far in their rebellion and their apostasy against Christ. They, 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 they have passed a threshold that can, be, that can no longer be reversed. And again, we don't know where that line is. We don't know where, that, where that, that final marker is, where you have gone so far in your rebellion against God that there literally is no hope for you. That's dreadful. That's dreadful. But I want to say this also about what Hebrews is trying to stress, and that is, is that going from an Old Covenant analogy, so going from the examples of the Old Testament and then going to the, what's going on in the New Testament, what has happened is that now the stakes are even higher. God has given more light. You remember what he says back in the Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And there the language is emphatic. How will we escape if we have been given so great a salvation? In other words, we stand at a better perspective now than all of redemptive history. We can see what all of redemptive history was about, the culmination. What were all the signs about? What was the exodus about? What was the Tower of Babel about? What was the exile about? What was the Day of Atonement about? What was everything about? It was about Christ and His salvation, His redemption, and everything that He would do. And then to turn away from that light, and to repudiate that light. It's not just a turning away. It's more than that. It's saying that you take a look at that and you deem it unclean. It's unclean. The blood of Jesus is unclean. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, he says, how much severe punishment. So we're going from the lesser to the greater. 
Now that we have all of this light in the gospel, apostasy of this kind is even more severe because you have sinned against greater light. John MacArthur said that if they could not be reached by this level of light, a lesser light at this point will never, ever do. So how do we, how do we derive from this hope? Well, let me leave you with the promises that are made to the people of God in Hebrews. Because yes, the book of Hebrews is a book of warnings, but it's also a book of promises. The warnings are meant for us to destroy sin and unbelief in our hearts. But the promises are there to satisfy us, to comfort us, and to encourage us along the way. Brothers and sisters, these warnings are just as important as the promises. The warnings are there to scare us. That's right. They're there to frighten us. Let us fear, lest there be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief. That's right. Only you know your own heart. You only, you, only you know who you truly are. The people around you, they might be able to give a, a, a general assurance and fellowship, and we might have a general assurance of who's in and who's out, but ultimately, God only knows and you know your heart, and God knows your heart, but Hebrews comforts us at the same time that it, that it warns us. It gives us great comfort. Let me give you some scripture to show you that in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is not teaching that you can lose your salvation, and it is not contradicting itself either. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. For by one offering, he has, watch this, perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Nowhere, now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ has perfected, has forgiven for all time all of those who God sanctifies. If you would, this is Romans chapter 8 in Hebrews, where Paul assures us that those that he foreknew, he predestined, and those that he predestined, he also called, and those that he called, he also justified, and those that he justified, he also glorified. This is an unbreakable chain. Also, look with me at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, because your options are few. You're either going to conclude, well, Hebrews contradicts itself. Chapter 6, it teaches you lose your salvation. Chapter 10, it teaches you can't. Or, Chapter 6 is not talking about the loss of salvation, but it is talking about the apostasy of the reprobate, which that's what I believe, and that's what historic Reformed theology has always maintained. I can't tell you, reading the commentaries this week has been quite an event to see these commentators grapple with this text. I mean, it's no easy task. My interpretation, definitely not going to be the last, but it's just amazing to see commentators back and forth and back and forth and not know what to do with this or that. 
One commentator who is a Wesleyan said, without question, this is teaching the loss of salvation. But most, that is an extreme position that is, you know what that's based on? That's based on refusing to allow the rest of Scripture to inform your interpretation. That's what it is. And that's what we don't ever want to do with any passage of Scripture. We want all of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, to inform our interpretation of any given text. Hebrews chapter 7 is such a text because it helps us to see that Hebrews here emphatically teaches perseverance of the saints and the comfort that flows from it. Therefore, Jesus, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus does not stop interceding. His intercession never ends for any of those who have genuinely been converted. His intercession is forever. He always lives as our intercessor. And because He is our intercessor, that means He is our mediator. And through our mediator, we get to God. That's how it happens. What an inestimable promise of the gospel. To know that Jesus stands not only as our mediator, but our intercessor, our intercessor who will not fail to sanctify and to glorify all of those who will draw near to Him by faith. All commentaries are agreed on this issue, that these warnings are the means that God has chosen to use to sanctify His people. In other words, there's a delicate balance here, because even though I am saying that Hebrews chapter 6 is not teaching the loss of salvation, I am saying that Hebrews chapter 6 is meant to warn us all and to induce a healthy gospel fear in our heart to know that we could, because of our finite, limited capacity, we should be vulnerable enough with God to say, oh God, let it not be me. Oh God, not my heart. Let not my heart wander, ever. Let not there be an evil, unbelieving heart in me. Only by the grace of God can I be kept from being, being a Judas. And only by God's grace can we be kept from sweeping aside these warnings and having a cavalier attitude about our perseverance and say, oh, yeah, I know that I'm not really walking with the Lord like I ought to, but I'm okay. I'm a child of God. I got baptized. I made a profession of faith. I signed a card. I went forward in an altar call. I've repented. Don't worry about me. No, no, no. Everything in Christianity is blood earnest. Everything in Christianity is sobering, to be sober-minded, not trivial, not cavalier, not trivializing away these important doctrines. Now, I want you to turn with me for one last reassurance, Hebrews chapter 10. This, I think, is perhaps the clearest example of the author of Hebrews operating under a worldview that sees the perseverance of the saints as a reality as a reality. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 35, says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. See, those folks that he's describing there, the potential of what is there is for those folks to throw away their confidence, to throw it away, to lose sight of the reward. 
He says, for you have need of endurance. See, that's the Christian life right there, that every one of us has to come to that place to understand that we need endurance. No matter who we are in the faith, no matter how much theology you know, no matter how long you've been walking with God, no matter what the experience you claim to have had in the Holy Spirit, you need endurance. You can never let your foot off the gas. He says, <clears throat> he says so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a, little, in a very little while, he who is coming will come. And will not delay. That's talking about the day of judgment. Verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, here we go. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. You may shrink back. You may shrink back for a time. You may falter. You may fail. You may backslide. You may go into a season of sin, but you will not shrink back to destruction if you are genuinely one of His. Watch this. We are not of those that shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The preserving of the soul. All of these things are meant as a means of grace for you and I to fear, oh God, keep me from presumptuous sin. Oh God, keep me from wondering, from, from disobedience, from doubt. Keep me from a hardened heart. These examples are given to us. As Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, these are written for our example so that we look back at the apostasy of Israel. We look back at what happened to the wilderness generation and so that we do not commit the same error as they have. I know that I probably just opened up a can of worms. That's okay. Our church is good at talking about cans of worms. So we can fellowship over all of the details. And of course, I know that a passage like this, many of you might have questions unanswered. Maybe you have grammatical questions that I didn't answer. That's fine. I'm not going anywhere. Feel free to come up and chat with me afterwards. But let's pray to the Lord. Father, <clears throat> we want to take heed now to the warning of Hebrews. We don't ever want to presume any one of us here so that we are not availing ourselves to the means of grace that you've given. Forbid that any of us are shying away from these means of grace, um, from fellowshipping with the local church, from having brothers and sisters in our lives to encourage one another day after day. And I challenge every single person in our church, particularly our members, I challenge every single one of us to be able to be described as those who have people in their lives who are challenging them and encouraging them day after day as long as it's called today. Father, keep us, Lord, from presumptuous sin. Help us and keep us on the narrow path, the narrow way. We know that it's difficult and it's hard and we meet many adversities in this life and we get bombarded from all sorts of attacks, sin, the world, and the devil. But God, we also know that by faith, we will persevere to the preserving of our souls. So we pray, God, that you would encourage us to greater faith and greater trust in the gospel now more than ever. In Jesus' name, amen.